Before he became a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright, composer, and lyricist, Michael R. Jackson was 23 years old and a recent graduate from NYU's undergraduate dramatic writing program. He looks back on this era now as the lost years. I had moved to this little old lady's bungalow house in the middle of nowhere to make a Queens. It was like $400 a month. It's like the last stop on the E train, it's the last stop on the F train, and then you have to take a bus. And I just was just in this house on the top level um, with my little, you know, compact Rosario laptop. And I just was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. Not sure how I was going to get a job or support myself or anything. So Jackson wrote a monologue called Why I Can't Get Work, a piece he is quoted describing as a young black gay man walking around New York, angst-filled, and trying to understand his own alienation. So there's this one section where he ends up talking about coming out. And he says, See, I didn't come out to myself until I was 16 years old, and I felt 16 like a prison sentence. These excerpts from his early work crackle with energy. The dialogue is raw and confessional. Even if Shaiwan did just die from AIDS, I just wanted to run like a wolf with them from bar to bar to Palmer Park and fag skating on Mondays at Northland Roller Rink after choir rehearsal. The main character in the piece cycles through anecdotes in an internal conversation with himself. So even though in that moment, waiting for the six, I think, maybe he's just into you, I think right after that, he probably just wants to gay bash you. So that's where I'm at, a bitter custody battle, thought versus thought, and thought wins. When you look at the monologue, it's almost like you're just looking at raw materials. There are sections within it that essentially allude to what would be the creation of Memory Song. I'm Joe Skinner. This is American Masters Creative Spark. In each episode, we bring you the story of how one work of art came to exist in the artist's own words. Today's focus, Michael R. Jackson on the making of Memory Song. Memory Song is the first song that Jackson ever wrote. It's a song that would journey with him throughout his career. It took over a decade to write, and ultimately, it would go on to become a revelatory scene in his 2020 Pulitzer Prize-winning show, A Strange Loop, a metafictional musical about, well, A Strange Loop. A Strange Loop is about a black gay man who works as an usher at a Broadway show, who is writing a musical about a black gay man who works as an usher at a Broadway show, who is writing a musical about a black gay man who works as an usher at a Broadway show, and sort of cycling through his own self-perception and self-hatred. Thoughts envelop the main character, Usher, around issues of identity, race, and sexuality. And those thoughts, they literally surround him. Portrait of a black queer face and a choir full of black queer voices. 
In a strange loop, an ensemble cast of six all-black and queer actors voice Usher's inner thoughts as physical characters. A Strange Loop is full of big musical numbers like the one you just heard, titled Intermission Song. But in contrast to these larger-than-life performances is Memory Song. It's quiet and introspective. So how did this song that Jackson wrote 16 years earlier as a standalone tune find its way into his wildly successful off-Broadway musical? To talk about the history of Memory Song, I kind of have to give the context of how I came to write musical theater in the first place. I'm from Detroit, Michigan originally. I started playing piano when I was eight years old. And like at that point, I mean, maybe you have taste, maybe you don't. I grew up listening to like, you know, whatever my parents were listening to. My earliest music was whatever was at church and then Motown, soul, that kind of thing. So I started playing piano and I don't think I liked it very much in the very beginning. A lot of what I was doing was just like songs that I would have sung at church. Suddenly they started letting me play for the kids choir. A lot of improvisation, you know, where I'm playing No Not One or What a Friend We Have in Jesus, but like the black way. Which was influenced by like the soul music and blues and all that stuff that I was growing up with. But then, something very important happened. I'm beginning to develop my own taste. My cousin, Zanita, brought me back all of this, like, white girl music. She gave me this album called Under the Pink by Tori Amos when I was, like, 15 years old. So I had a Walkman, and one night, I turn off the lights, and I put it on, and my life was changed forever. The first words I heard go, Tears on the sleeve of a man, don't want to be a boy today. And like the moment I heard that, it was like a door open. Questions about like queerness and about religion. Cause in the next song is God, sometimes you just don't come through. I would make my dad take me to the, the music store and buy her piano books. What happened was that the more I listened to her music, the more I began to try to imitate it. A lot of my compositional style of improvisation that I developed listening to her piano-based music has like followed me through the years. So do you think that piano-based music would years later inspire your work on Memory Song? Absolutely. So it's actually really quite explicit. It's totally different sound and everything, but the gesture is the same. The way Tori Amos's song Pretty Good Year starts, it starts like this. Tears on the sleeve of a man, don't want to be a boy today. So then years later, when I sat down to write Memory Song, I wanted to write a song that made me feel the way it felt when I heard that song. And what came out was... (laughs) 
Five foot four, high school gym, sneaking a cupcake. These are my memories. These are my memories. Shooting hoops off the rim, slow on the uptake. These are my memories. These are my memories. Like that's the Tori in me. I was obsessed with the way that music made me feel because it gave me chills. And so I want to make people feel the chills that I felt, but from my perspective. Almost a decade had gone by since the Tori Amos-inspired musical revelation from Michael R. Jackson's childhood. He was now 23, living in Queens, trying to figure things out. He still had never formally written a song, but a teacher saw his potential and recommended he apply to NYU's MFA program in musical theater writing. He got in. For this one particular class that was toward the end of our first year, a teacher said, if you're a composer who's never written lyrics, you can try it for this one assignment. And so I decided to try writing my own song, even though I was not a composer in the program. I never studied composition. I just grew up playing piano and, and, and loving music. The seed for Jackson's first song came from one sentence drawn from a meaningful connection. I was in a class and one of my classmates, a friend of mine, was another black gay man who wrote a song about a one-night stand and feeling deep religious guilt about it and other feelings that I recognized because I grew up black and gay around a lot of other black gay boys. And it just struck me, and I wrote in my notebook, all those black gay boys I knew who chose to go on back to the Lord. So then fast forward a couple of months, and I get this assignment at the point where I'm like, oh, I'm going to try writing my own music now to uh, my own lyrics. So I went to my little notebook, and I fell upon all these black gay boys I knew who chose to go on back to the Lord. And so I just was noodling around and playing around, trying to figure out how to set this lyric, which I had never had done before. And so I just sat down, and I like finally figured out. These are my memories. These are my memories of one lone black gay boy I knew who chose to turn his back on the moon. And I just really liked it. I thought it sounded kind of haunting and a little funny, and that became the touchstone for which the rest of the song would spring from. I then started to slowly figure out the verses that would earn that chorus. Guilt and shame, Jesus' name, church every Sunday. These are my memories, these are my memories. Eat his body, drink his blood, communion buffet. These are my memories, sweet sour memories. After church, we're driving home to radio crackle. Jazz bills at the Motown blues and skin is a shackle. It's about a young gay black man remembering images from when he was a teenager in high school. Dad is drunken on the couch while mom eats a pork chop. Daily bread mill, daily treadmill won't ever stop. And he starts more religious imagery with the daily bread mill, daily treadmill. The idea of life is sort of in this loop. Things are not changing in this sort of black urban experience. Then this image of being crucified the way Christ would be within his identity. 
lying on the couch, I dream that I'm flying, flapping both my wings so hard to keep me from dying. With the crown of God forsaken thorns on my head. Like all those black gay boys I knew who chose to go on back to the I wrote Memory Song when I was 23. But the spirit of this song is recalling when I was 15 or 16, which is around the time when I was like coming out, which was a very difficult and painful and weird time. Michael R. Jackson turned in an early draft of the music and lyrics of Memory Song for his class, and from there, his career turned a corner. Over time, the song found its way into the evolution of his monologue, Why I Can't Get Work. Along with some other songs, this new piece became a one-man show called Fast Food Town. I performed one night only at Ars Nova in New York City. 20 people came in, two of them walked out in the middle of it. And then from there, I was like, I don't want this to be a one-man show. I don't want this to be a cabaret act. I want it to be a musical, albeit a probably unconventional one, and one that's sort of more in the vein of what they used to call concept musicals in the 70s, like Company or, you know, A Chorus Line. A strange loop was born. He now had his main character, named Usher, for his job as a theater usher, a position Jackson himself held for four years for The Lion King on Broadway. I'm a Disney usher, I'm barely scraping by. My discontentment comes in many shapes and sizes. When I wake up each morning, I tell myself to try. I tell myself that I will make no compromises. Because Usher is a character who is essentially a perception of myself, as I would change, Usher would change. Our experiences were like very parallel. I had to get to a place of objectivity in my own life to understand what Usher's problem and story was. And once I got to that point, I was able to, like, capture his experience in a bottle. Usher, tirelessly performed in the show's off-Broadway run by actor Larry Owens, journeys through decades of emotional terrain in one act. He confronts his parents' religious beliefs and homophobia. He balances a soulless commercial ghostwriting gig. He navigates a racist dating community. All of this inside his own head. Many of these elements seem to mirror aspects of Jackson's own life. But he says A Strange Loop is not a work of autobiography. The show is a study of the self and of Black queer selfhood in particular and of selfhood in general. And so it's not a show that you should watch and just feel like you can just look at me and know everything. If I were to call it autobiographical, I would call it emotionally autobiographical because I have felt everything that Usher has felt. But the events of that are not necessarily the same. Near the end of A Strange Loop, just before Memory Song finds its way into the show, Jackson's main character, Usher, sings an impassioned and ironic song 
titled Precious Little Dream slash AIDS is God's Punishment. This is Jackson's direct confrontation with the fear-mongering and hateful messaging around the HIV and AIDS crisis that he so often heard in his youth. He's, he's railing against like, you know, the church and against homophobia and against the theater. And it turns to a big old Megillah of a song, just sort of like bringing this idea of like black people wailing away in church and all this stuff. And But meanwhile, you know, someone in his life has died of AIDS, which is this thing that is constantly lobbed at him. Like, if you keep being gay, you're going to get AIDS and all this stuff. At the end of the song, one of Usher's inner thoughts stands by, dressed like his mother, and asks him, Is this really what real life is like? Usher is being challenged for his ironic posturing. And this is where we arrive at maybe the most earnest moment in the show. This is where Memory Song has found its way into Jackson's musical, and his main character begins to find some clarity. It's a standalone song wherein he takes stock of everything that brought him identity-wise to where he stands today that's different from the character at the beginning of the show who starts off feeling like he's worthless. These are my memories, sweet sour memories. This is my history. This is my mystery. Now the image that we were left with that he repeats over and over again is all those black gay boys he knew who chose to go on back to the Lord. This idea that there's this other group of people within his identity who made a different choice. Then it, the last one of those changes it back to himself in contrast to these other black gay boys who chose to go on back to the Lord and one lone black gay boy he knew that chose to turn his back on the Lord instead. And so it's a small but really significant shift about how the character is thinking about himself in contrast to other people in his identity. Jackson's subtle lyrical shift is really important to understanding Memory Song. Ultimately, it's a song about accepting your own identity, against all the pressures you might face from institutions and people that surround you. He has described it as an anthem, to all those black gay boys he knew who chose to go on back to the Lord, and to all those black gay boys he knew who chose to turn their backs to the Lord instead. As I mentioned, the song was initially inspired by just listening to this friend of mine tell his sort of black gay story that inspired me, that reminded me of my own 
pass. What happened was the friend was supposed to be the orchestrator for the show, but unbeknownst to me, he was dying from AIDS. And I did not know that until far, far into the process of even getting the show ready to go up. And yet his death was this weird, it was a one of the loops in just the way the show came into being. Because if I had never heard his song, I would have never written down all those black boys and the chose going back to the Lord. And I never would have probably written the show. Like ultimately. His life and death is sort of, for me personally, um, very wrapped up in what the show is. And um, I'm sorry. But it, it just, it became a, just a really important element of it. And he, his, you know, his life, it just, it, it just is in it. And it's like, it's tied to my life because we went in two different directions, but we were the same. Do you see Memory Song now as a way to honor him? I mean, it's like, wasn't how it started, but it just, it became that. It was this weird thing that left from reality into fiction that was reality. It was just, it was a strange loop. It's not like it's something I planned. I didn't reverse engineer it. It just was a sad, beautiful, terrifying, organic thing that just happened. What do you think is the purpose of art? I think that art is for the purpose of seeing the world through other people's eyes and for taking something that is intangible and making it tangible or visible or something you can feel. I think it's a way of telling the truth about what is in front of us. And that can be, you know, light there or that can be really dark but it always, in my view, needs to be true. The journey for Memory Song and A Strange Loop continues to evolve. Performances of A Strange Loop begin this November in a six-week engagement at Woolly Mammoth Theater Co. in Washington, D.C. And this limited run is being hyped as Broadway-bound. Thank you to Michael R. Jackson for his interview and for inviting us into his creative process. Join us for more episodes weekly as we continue to look into how artists make their work. American Masters Creative Spark is a production of the WNET Group, media made possible by all of you. The show is produced by me, Joe Skinner. Our executive producer is Michael Cantor. Original music is composed by Hannes Brown. Funding for American Masters Creative Spark was provided by the Anderson Family Charitable Fund and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.